Well, we are in uh, 1 Kings, the 20th chapter, and we're wrapping up the life of Hezekiah, who has been a pretty great king. Uh, in fact, the Bible says uh, something about him being, you know, one of the best since King David and on and on. So, I mean, it spoke very, very highly of him. Uh, remember, he was uh, getting ready to die from some, we don't know what. And uh, the, the prophet Isaiah uh, comes up to him and uh, prophesies to him that he's going to die. Sneeze, almost a sneeze, but not a sneeze. I turned the mic off in anticipation of the sneeze. <laughs> Nothing like 60 decibels of achoo in your ears. But uh, anyway, so uh, Isaiah comes and says, look, uh, time's up. You're checking out. See ya. And, uh, and Hezekiah cries out to God and God hears him. He's got a tender heart and God says, okay, go back. Tell him he's going to live. So uh, he gets another 15 years and uh, he asks for the sign. And Isaiah says, I don't know. You want to see the sun go forward or backward? And uh, he says, well, well, it's always going forward. Let's go backward. And sure enough, moves. we don't know how much time, but one of the more dramatic miracles in the Bible. And uh, so anyway, so he uh, becomes okay. Um, then we pick it up at uh, chapter 20, verse 12. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah gifts, letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. We've seen this over and over again. These kings at some point kind of, there's like this fraternity or they kind of respect and like each other, but then they kill each other first chance they get. Just the bizarrest thing throughout the whole Old Testament that we've been reading, particularly through kings here, uh, the way they would react with each other. So, um, gee, we heard you're sorry that you're sick. Sorry to hear you're sick. Send them a nice present. Of course, first chance they get, he'll kill a whole lot of them. But, you know, nice to see you, that kind of thing. So Hezekiah received the messengers and showed them all that was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, uh, which is interesting because it's, it, from time to time these guys emptied all the gold in their treasuries to pay off of some other king to keep them from uh, uh, attacking them. But apparently it doesn't take long before they fill up their treasuries again, which makes you feel bad for the little guys down on the totem pole probably got taxed the life out of them. But that was that whole system of kings and, and whatnot. Anyway, so he shows them all the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his armory, everything found among his treasures. And there was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, what's real interesting about this is God is getting ready to, uh, we know historically, to uh, he'd already punished the northern kingdom, Israel, and uh, they sent them into captivity. They lost their land, slaves all over the place, scattered all over the place. Uh, and he's getting ready to do the same thing with Judah as the final discipline on Israel. The, the nation of Israel for constantly disobeying him. And uh, the nation that he's going to use to bring this great punishment is going to be Babylon. They're going to be taken off into Babylonian captivity. Uh, one of the major events in the Bible and some of the books of the Bible, the book of Daniel, the story of Daniel and the lions, and all this was done during the Babylonian captivity. Anyway, so we're coming up to So here this Babylonian king comes. They're making good. He's looking at everything. And... Uh, you know, then it says, after they left, then Isaiah the prophet went to, to King Hezekiah and said, uh, what did those men say and where did they come from? And uh, from a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came from Babylon. You're just like a faraway place, not really realizing someday they're going to come. 
and wipe them all out. Um, and then the prophet asked, what do they see in your palace? And Hezekiah said, well, they saw, they saw everything in my palace. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. So being a very nice host to these guys, showing them everything. Uh, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. And then he starts to prophesy and let him know that this nation is going to come and kick their behinds big time. Here's the prophecy. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So this this is a bad prophecy. You know, you're going to lose everything. They're going to come wipe everything out. But then he says, this will happen to your descendants. They will wind up as slaves. They'll have their chicken nuggets cut off, the whole deal. You know, this is not not a good story of what's going to be happening. And and look at his response. Chicken nuggets. I'm still trying to figure that out. Eunuch, eunuch people. Anyway, do the math. (laughs) So anyway, now check out his response. He goes, oh. Well, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. Now, what a strange thing to say. Now, the reason he's saying this, as we'll find out in a second, is what he's hearing is that this horrible judgment is going to come a little bit down the line. The reason he thinks it's good is because it won't happen to me. All right? So being a little self-centered to say the least although you gotta admit if you know everything's gonna come crashing down in the world even look at look at the country we're living in today and the mess in the country and the economic mess throughout the world and stuff like that you know you can't help but think gee this cannot keep going and can't part of you can't help but hope it doesn't happen for another hundred years or so (laughs) when we're not here anymore you know what I'm saying so that's kind of his response so he says the word of the Lord you have spoken is good for he thought the Bible says will there not be peace and security in my lifetime so you know again it's it's, it's easy to slam him for it but I can't help but think that we all think I mean let's face it we all know the world's coming to an end right and part of us think well I'd be great uh, to be here when it all happens but I think a lot of us think gee I hope I'm out of here before all this happens you know what I'm saying it doesn't make us evil it just you know, it is what it is, you know, because Hezekiah was, was a pretty good guy. And then he wraps it up. As for the other events of Hezekiah's reign, blah, 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 blah. You can read about it in the other books. Every single king they mentioned said you can read about what else they did and whatever. All right, so anyway, verse 21, Hezekiah rested with his fathers, which means he dies. And then Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. Now, Manasseh, we've read about some pretty terrible Kings and Ahab and you know all the stuff that they were. Uh, Manasseh takes it to an all-time high. He becomes the most wicked king in the history of Judah and and, uh, and of Israel. And this is just you know the final straw, if you will, where God's anger is is just headed up to here with them. And then God puts into motion 
the events. Isaiah already prophesied it, and he, God knew what was coming. God's not surprised by these things. And that puts into motion the events. Now, the, the, the judgment doesn't happen right away. I think sometimes people make a disconnect because God's timetable is a lot different than ours. You know, it's God from a human standpoint is incredibly patient, you know, but you know, he's eternal and time clicks pretty fast for it. It doesn't mean a whole lot uh, to him, but uh, anyway, judgment comes and, it, and uh, it becomes this massive major event in biblical history, which we'll, we'll get to. Anyway, let's discuss Mr. Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king you say that's kind of young uh that's not actually a few of them have been really young like that i think we got one coming up now that's going to be six years old when he becomes king or eight or whatever it is but anyway so he's 12 when pop kicks the bucket which means that he was born after god extended his life you know because god gave him an extra 15 years so anyway um so he becomes king and uh, he reigns in Jerusalem for 55 years. So he's stuck around for quite a while. This really wicked guy. His mother's name was Hephzibah. Hephzibah, if you're looking for a name for your baby. <laughs> I wouldn't pick Hephzibah. But anyway, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. You have to remember now. Um, as we read how God promised to bring them to the promised land. And remember what, it, what, what, what Moses said. He says, you think God's bringing you to this land because you're so good. The reality is he's bringing you to bring judgment on this land because the people are so bad. Do you remember that when we read that? I mean, it's just very so. So God was fulfilling his promise to them, but at the same time using them because the people that were there before them were so wicked to a level that is hard to comprehend and uh, it says that basically Manasseh grafts on to that old history and, and takes Israel or Judah at this point down this path of being incredibly wicked like the nations that he had driven out long before. And he starts to talk about some of the things that he did. He rebuilt the high places. These were uh, places where they worship idols, demons, whatever the deal was. Basically Satan worship that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. Hezekiah was a good guy. This kid was a, was a disaster. He also erected altars to Baal. Uh, again, Satan worship. Uh, that's why later Satan is referred to as Baal Zebub. Okay? Um, uh, he made an Asherah pole, all part of this worship, as Ahab, the king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. He was very much into astrology and all part, again, of you know this uh, propensity to get into worship, uh, idol worship and Satan worship and uh, uh, um, astrology and stuff like that. That's why the Bible speaks very strongly against these things. If, if you're inclined to get into that stuff, don't, don't go down that path. Uh, you don't be reading your horoscopes and, and doing all this other kind of nonsense. The Bible speaks of it in, in the most negative of terms. Okay, We are to avoid that stuff like the plague. All right, so, um, but he was into this. He built altars in the temple of the Lord. See, it was bad enough that he would build these altars. Now he's gone so far. The place that Solomon had built, this incredible temple of worship where the presence of God was, and, and God said, this is where my name will be. He started bringing these idols and stuff into the temple of God. And uh, talking about really going over the line here. 
So he built altars in the temple of the Lord, which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to the starry hosts. Come see your uh, um, you know, horoscope here at the temple. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. Remember I told you these people were into human sacrifice a big time. Uh, again, people say, well, why would God, you know, they, they brought all this slaughter and stuff. Why would God do that? You have to understand, this was major judgment. Just like sometimes God will use armies today to bring judgment, I believe. You know, I mean, it's hard to say God knows what's going on. But so sometimes these horrible, horrible dictators that have done horrible things, even the Hitlers and the stuff like that. At some point, the world rises up. And I think God is behind us to bring serious judgment on these horrible people. Well, these people that we are mortified by today, uh, I think at some level we're not even as horrid as some of these people, or you know, at least in the same category. I mean, they you know shed blood. Hitler obviously millions of people. Some of the Pol Pot regime destroyed millions of people. This is the kind of people that these were. That when God brought in the Israelites and destroyed these army, you know, and and destroyed all these people that were mortified from our point of view today when we read the Old Testament, there was a reason. These were not just you know. Chicago Bears fans, you know what I'm saying? I mean, these, these <laughs> we're not big fans of, you know what I'm saying? We don't go down there and kill them all. You know, that would be a little out of, these were bad, bad people. And I think we, we miss that. And that's why it seems confusing to us. So uh, not only was this guy into human sacrifice, he even sacrificed his own son. This is how intense he was into it. Uh, he practiced sorcery, divination, consulted mediums, spiritists, got his Palms read by everybody he could. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will, I will not again make it the feet Make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their forefathers. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them uh, and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. What he's doing, he's quoting what God had said earlier about this temple and how revered this temple was. And he's doing all this in the temple. And then, of course, he says the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray. So they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Now it had come full circle. God had brought out a people who 400 years were in slavery in Egypt who had cried out to God. God sent Moses to them, told Pharaoh, let my people go. He didn't want to let them go. Resisted. God kept bringing one plague after another until finally Pharaoh relented. The miracle of bringing them across the, the, the sea and, 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 and through all of that stuff. And then to use them to wipe out this, these horrible people that would have been in this land. To bring good people that would follow him and serve him. And now, after all these years of sliding away from God, now they had become more evil than the original nations that God had used them to drive out. Wow, this, this is bad. So the Lord said through his servant, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him, and they were bad. And he's led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it of it will tingle. I mean, he's going to wipe them out when, when uh, the Babylonians come in. 
and wipe these guys out and drag them off into captivity. This is going to be a major horrible event. I will stretch out over Jerusalem, the measuring line used against Samaria, and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab, bad places, bad people that God had brought judgment on. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their foes because they had done evil in my eyes and have provoked me to anger from the day their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood. I mean, this guy was, you know, like these guys who commit genocide. It was horrible. And the human sacrificing and stuff like that. Um, you know, I just thought of this just now. What was that movie that uh, Mel Gibson did some years ago about, uh, what was it called? What? You're all speaking in your tongues over there. What's it called? Apocalypto. That's it. Yes. He knows what I'm talking about. Good man. Um, and, and, he, and he talks, he does this movie about the Mayan cultures and stuff like that, right? That, that when they, they first came. Remember, because when you look at it today, we, my iPod's talking to me. Shut up. Um, but, <laughs> sorry, I got, I got the attention span of a fly. But, uh, but, but you know, we, we hear today of, you know, these terrible Christian missionaries and these people came in and robbed this wonderful cultures and stuff like that. Uh, Gibson does a, an unbelievable job of showing you what that culture was like. You remember the movie? I mean, it was unbelievable. How many of you have seen it? I mean, it's, it is gross. It was unbelievably violent. I could hardly even stand watching the movie. You know, the human sacrifice and stuff. This is what that was like when these Spaniards came and went, oh, terrible how they wiped them out. You know, how do you know but what God didn't use them like he used this and other armies in the past to wipe out some of these cultures? These were no, you know, no small deals. You know, we, we've been to Hawaii several times in the Hawaiian culture over there. And, and even in some of their things when they talk about... Uh, Okay, again, you know, we have very short memories, you know, kind of like the whole 9-11, everybody forgets what all that's about, man. So the, the Hawaiian culture talks about how terrible the missionaries came over and, and, and we lost the culture of the god of Pele and all these kind of stuff, you know. I mean, hello, these people would throw people into these, you know, volcanoes and stuff. It was incredibly violent. This was not, this no small deal. Any Hawaiians here don't get mad at me. Anyway, um, so... Uh, uh, you know, when, when you when you really get a picture and you see what they were doing, it changes everything. In fact, at the end of the movie, all of a sudden you saw these Spaniards or what? Wasn't it? You know, they come out and didn't they seem like heroes at that point? You know, well, it wasn't heroes to them, but it was like finally this this incredible barbarism. Not that the Spaniards were perfect, but goodness gracious. So these this Manasseh guy. They were into the human sacrifices, the blood. So it was more than just the fact that they were worshiping different gods that offended God. It, I mean, these guys were out of control. The sexual sin, the, uh, uh, the forced um, uh, orgies, the, the bloodletting. I mean, this was one violent, wicked, wicked culture. More wicked than the first nations God drove out of that place. And these were the children of God. These were the descendants of those slaves that God brought up out of Egypt. That he had showed such miracles to. The power of God to. Fed them. 
uh, with manna that came from heaven and open rocks where water would come rushing out. I mean, this, the, the miracles that you read in the Old Testament, and yet despite the incredible demonstration of God's love and power, which we saw over and over and over again through up to this time, they would just keep sliding and sliding and sliding into the abyss away from God. Amazing. So he shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from one to one end to from end to end. Beside the sin that he also caused Judah to commit, so that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As for the other events of Manasseh's reign, blah 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 blah, and uh, it always ends with each one of these guys. And then Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. Now, what's really striking here is we have a day and night picture. We, we just saw the, the picture of uh, Hezekiah who said he was such a king, great king there had been no other king like him before or after. You're not counting David or whatever. That, that was such a great guy. And then the son of this guy becomes the most wicked king in history. How in the world? This pulpit is falling apart. It's like we got bugs in here or something. Wow. Anyway, we went from the great king to such a, what was I talking about? A horrible king. You wonder what in the world happened. Now, uh, I just want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the transmission of generational faith. Now, you don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. How do you have such a great king and have a kid who didn't have a clue now you can say well he was what 12 when dad died you know maybe he didn't get a chance to really get this in him I guess that would be uh, something to look at but one thing that is very important certainly for us today is we need to have the kind of faith experience in our lives that we successfully get this into our kids and get it into their kids now let me say this to you uh, from a, a point of not making some of you feel really horrible that you've, you haven't been able to get your faith into your kids. Um, there's all kinds of, again, here's Hezekiah, great king, and then his you know, kids, the devil. You know, how does that happen? I don't know. Uh, you got the story where um, the prodigal son, the, the father, basically a picture of God, has these two sons. One son, very faithful. The other one is a pig. You know, is it the fault of the father? I mean, certainly the fact that we're such a mess, you can't point your finger and say, it's God's fault that we're like this. It's not God's fault. You know, so is it possible for a parent to do everything perfectly right and still have kids screwed up? Well, clearly, yes. Okay. We are <laughs> exhibit numero uno. Okay, and God, I mean, God didn't mess up. He didn't do anything wrong. And look what a mess we are. So, so it's possible to have done everything right. And you can have the prodigals that will turn and run from God and they won't have anything to do with God. And so, you've got, so number one, you've got to get that out there. So that it's entirely possible and feasible. Having said that, I think that needs to be and should be the exception, not the rule. The scripture says, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Okay, well, obviously, that's the rule. We've got the exceptions, all right? But uh, 
one thing that we really need to get into is we've got to be able to pass our faith on to our kids. And that's the number one challenge. And that's why we talk so much about marriage and family in this church. Because if we can't live this at home, then we can't live this. Then everything we're saying is just a bunch of caca for crying out loud. I mean, you've got to live this stuff. How can we say we love Jesus, but I hate my wife? How can I just, you know, praise God, I love Jesus. I want my husband to die and go to hell, but I love Jesus, hallelujah. You know, which I've heard Christians literally say to me, phrases like that. You know, like, what in the world? You know, and then, then they wonder why their kids don't want to have anything to do with it. You know, you have to understand, we need to live this at home. It's not just what you say to your kids. Anybody ever have parents tell you to do one thing while they did the other? <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of common, ain't it? You know, don't do as I do, do as I say. Well, that doesn't work. Because at the end of the day, we look and key off of what they do. I mean, how do you treat your spouse? You know, when you come in your church and you sing and you smile at the pastor, that's one thing. But what your kids really watch is the way you live at home. How do you guys treat one another? You know, because that's going to say reams to them. How do you act when you're driving and somebody cuts you off? Some of those wonderful people in church, man, they're, you know, they're waving, we're number one. But a different finger, uh, you know. And uh, but I think I mean we're number one. Don't they mean that? I'm sure not sure what that has to do with anything. But uh, screaming and yelling and getting mad and crazy. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? You're supposed to love Jesus, and you're going psycho crazy. Come some psychopath cut you off? Goodness gracious! That's what you're. I'm telling you, we've got to live this. The real every day, and the thing that we try to emphasize more than anything. We're not real big. We talk about high doctrines and stuff like that, but we don't really get into all that stuff, you know. You know, some of that stuff is who even understands all of it. You know, I'll tell you what I think, but I don't even get it. You know what I'm saying? But then there's just the common everyday stuff the Bible talks about that it's replete with how to live life. How to tolerate people. How to be kind in the midst of unkindness. How to be patient when you don't feel like being patient. These kinds of things. How do you guys handle life? When, when stuff really starts hitting the fan in your life, do you freak out? Do you freak out and panic? I know a lot of people who do. You know? We're getting ready for our men's conference, you know, encouraging men to man up and be the men in their homes. And what does that mean? Well, if nothing else, just don't panic. And don't freak out about everything. And some guys are the greatest terrorists in their own home because they fill their wife and their children full of fear. Ah, I'm going to lose my job. Everything's going to be horrible. I don't know how we're going to pay. You got an eight-year-old hearing you say that? I wish I was bigger. I'd punch you in the face for crying out loud. It's not very Christian, but it's what I want to do. Seriously, you're freaking the will. So now when we talk about trusting God and the kids sit in church and they hear pastor talk about trusting God, they hear that, but you know what they're looking at? Is dad coming to unglued because he might lose his job. Mom yelling at dad, I don't know how we're going to make it. So when I say stuff, it's it's only goes as far as what you're living at home. 
live this stuff. I'm not saying you can't talk about the challenges and problems. Look, I might lose my job. We might have a hard time. But you know what? We're going to trust God. We're going to be okay. We're going to make it. God has never forsaken me. He will never forsake me in the future. Give some full. Now, now when I talk to your kids about trusting God, experiencing God. Oh, now there's context. Yeah, that's that's how mom and dad handle this. Do you hear what I'm saying? We got to live this stuff at home. We need to pass our faith on to our kids. It needs to be multi-generational faith. Is it hard? Yes, it's hard. It's really hard. Those little rugrats drive us insane. And they will push you to the limit. You know, we need to, you know, I've been talking to my staff about this. I, I, I need to set us, I'm starting to do some stuff now to get ready for. I want to do a series on just parenting. How do you parent? How do you survive kids? You know, on purpose. You survive it on purpose. Seriously. <laughs> you know, it's like we don't, don't you know they're going to turn 13? When they're eight, they lose their minds. I know, I hear you. But you don't know that's coming? If you know an event's coming, shouldn't you prepare your children when they still like you? When they still like you at 10 to say, you know, you really like me right now. In a couple of years, you're going to hate me. No, I won't. Yes, you will. (laughs) You'll hate me because you'll think I'm your biggest enemy because I will stand between you and hell. And prepare them for it. So when they turn into these seemingly insane people, you can say to them, you remember when I told you that you'd turn the stage and you'd hate me? Yeah. At least you give it context. You know, we should be preparing. We're not preparing. We're just going to life like it's just, oh my gosh, I didn't know anybody would turn 16. I mean, come on. Not to mention the hormones and everything else. Oh, good Lord. Anyway, that's why it's so important. We've got to, we've got to, again, you can do everything right and still. Some of them will go astray. There's not, you know, don't kill you. Don't become depressed and suicidal because, oh, my kid didn't pass the rates. No, no, no. You can do everything right, just like God, and still wind up with us. <laughs> and that's sad. <laughs> so, so if anybody needs to cut people slack, it needs to be us. You know what I'm saying? But having said that, let's, let's live this out, man. Let's work this through. Let's live the kind of lives consistently at home and when we're driving. And, you know, do you curse? Do you curse? I know, you know I hear from ladies in our church. They generally don't come on Wednesday night. It's part of their problem. But ladies in our church, their husbands curse at them. Curse you cursing at your wife. By the way, any woman, your husband curses at you and they come to this church, you come tell me. I'm going to have a come to Jesus meeting with that guy. And I've done it more than once. We, I'm not going to tolerate that. What are you cursing at your wife? Nimrod? Now, if he's a heathen, he never comes to church, what are you going to do? But he comes here, it's a different ball game. We need to challenge each other to a higher standard. Let's live this stuff out and make it real. And if we'll live this stuff out and really live it at home. You know, they've been saying uh, so much lately that the statistics of evangelical Christians, that's that's a category they put us into. And we're not Catholics, but we're evangelical Christians. Is that they say... And, I, and it's hard to even relate to this, but they're saying as high as 80% of all the children of evangelical Christians totally give up on their faith by the first or second year of college. 
Are you kidding me? I would be mortified if 20% were doing that. You're telling me 80% are not getting this. The only thing I can think, people, you know, I've been in these meetings and they think, well, we just need new programs and we need better youth programs. No, because everybody's getting the same results. It's not about the programs. I'm convinced it's the homes. I'm convinced it's our homes. You know, the whole divorce culture that we live in today, man, it's, again, it's hard to sell that you really love Jesus when you hate mom. Do you yell at your wife? Are you berating her in front of your children? Come on, you shouldn't be doing it in secret, but much less in front of your children. We've got to be better than that. Are you critical of your husband all the time? You don't think your children see that? You know, there's a study done, Swiss government. I've mentioned this before, I'll be mentioning it at our men's conference, but, you know, they said that statistically, that if a woman faithfully brings a child to church all her life by herself, there's only a 2% chance she'll become a lifelong Christian. The, the kids will be lifelong Christians, 2%. If a man does it by himself, it jumps to like 45%. Just shows you the power of men, the power of influence of men. But what's sad about it is that when you put the wife back into the category, it dropped 10%. And the, and, the, and the researchers couldn't figure it out. I can figure it out. Susan's mom comes back in. Your dad's an idiot. You know what he's talking about. Watch the way. And even if you're in a divorce situation, I've got to wrap this up. I'm two minutes and 37 seconds long. I don't know what are you can do. Fire me. <laughs> They're not paying me now anyway. What am I? I got nothing. I got nothing to lose. <laughs> God help us all. Um, what was I going to say? See, I took a sidetrack and I forgot what I was going to say. Divorce, divorce. Okay, not, not, not to make you feel terrible about that, but when, when that stuff kicks in, it is so damaging in the home. And if you've been through that, man, pray. Be praying extra. Trust God. Prayer, prayer makes a big difference. Pray. Really ask God to get in there. Touch their hearts and stuff. Again, you can still do everything right and still they'll run away from Jesus. We've, we've discussed that. But I've got to believe that has to be the exception rather than the rule. I've got to believe we should need to get this into our kids, into our kids, into the next generation. You know, we got it into our kids, and now I pray and fast for my grandsons. God, get it into them. God, that they would get this, that they would really know you. Because at the end of the day, my testimony, when I look around and say, was I able to get this into them and then were they able to get it into the next ones? Hopefully I'm around long enough we can even take a shot at the next ones. But, uh, but anyway, so, you know, anyway, it's, it's just that whole challenge. Hezekiah, great guy, his kid, insane. But uh, let's trust God for better results than poor Hezekiah had and not give birth to the devil. Anyway, I'm done. Bye. <laughs>